0: listeners it's sam here again and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show paces ahead have courses for the start of 2024 and listeners here's a possible sweetener for you i will be there at their first course of 2024 that's the 16th to the 19th of january please do come along and say hi if you catch me it would be great to meet some of you if you're there but there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well, the 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market leading online revision PACES resource. I think most PACES sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labeled Pass Test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners to the Pre-PACES podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. It's been a while since we've had a solo episode from me and so I've been racking my brains to think of something relatively straightforward which is relevant to all of you listening and that is consenting for procedures. Now, if you're early on in your medical training, maybe a foundation doctor, or an internal medical trainee, you may not have had to consent to a patient for an invasive procedure before, but it is definitely something which you will be doing in your further years of training. In my experience, consenting patients for most procedures follows a very similar format which can be easily adapted depending on the specific procedure, and i found it hugely helpful over the years, and so I thought I would share it with you today. So with that in mind, the aim of this episode will be to arm you with some tools which are required to effectively consent patients for the most common procedures which you might be asked to carry out on the medical take or on a medical ward. Not only that, but through the grapevine, I've been made aware that consenting for procedures or discussing procedures with patients has formed part of the new shortened communication stations in the new PACES 2023 diet. So for those of you thinking that this won't be directly applicable to PACES, I have been made aware that this has featured in a communication station within the new PACES 2023 diet. We are going to use a couple of case-based examples which may be presented as possible vignettes in our PACES exam and then discuss how to approach discussing these procedures with our patients we'll be focusing on three of the cornerstone procedures that you'll be expected to achieve competency in on the medical take. And these are all procedures which are mentioned within the minimum requirements for IMT training in the ARCP decision aid provided on the Joint Royal College of Physician Training Board. And if you're not a training doctor in the UK, all of those acronyms and training bodies will mean absolutely nothing to you. So to put it into normal words, we will be taking a close look at chest drain or intercostal drain insertion, abdominal paracentesis and drain insertion and lumbar punctures so without further ado let's get into it so just starting off the principles of informed consent can be found in a previous solo episode of the podcast which is episode 22 so we won't be covering that in detail again but If you want a foundation to consent and capacity, then you can find that earlier in the podcast feed. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I have more or less the same spiel which I use as a skeleton structure for a consenting process, which can easily be tailored and adapted depending on the procedure. And I learned this from a fantastic pediatrician in my fourth year of medical school. As with many of the best uh, memory uh, devices used in medical school, this, of course, comes in the form of a mnemonic. And the letters of the mnemonic spell the word P-Brain. However, the E and the A are missing, so it's just the letter P and B-R-A-I-N. And as with most uh, medical acronyms, there's a slight jumbling of the order of the letters and the I actually goes at the end, so it it is P-Branny. Uh, But that's not a real word, and it'll become clear why the I is deferred to the end of the mnemonic when we come to discuss that individual letter. So without further ado, let's start with our letter P. So our first letter P stands for the procedural process. This is literally explaining what will happen during the procedure. In any situation where you're consenting, it's obviously important to be clear with your communication, to be as reassuring as possible, as the patient may well be anxious about what is about to happen. It's important to get your language right in these sorts of situations, and hopefully, as we talk through the rest of the mnemonic, I can help you with some useful phrases which come in handy when we come to discuss the specific benefits and risks of the procedures a bit later. However in general terms the procedural process can be divided into three stages. The first stage is setting up for the procedure. So how is the patient going to need to prepare? How are we going to position the patient before we actually perform this invasive procedure? Step two is then the procedure itself. This is the part where there's usually some sort of needle puncture to the skin or some form of incision. And this is the actual invasive part of the procedure, which is important to, as I've said, be as reassuring as possible about this part. I always find it's very helpful to emphasize the use of local anesthetic to make it as comfortable as possible for the patient. So I tend to linger on that for a long time. In addition to that, Talking about the risk of infection, I always try and emphasize how sterile the procedure is with the use of sterile gloves, the use of um, antiseptic wash, and personal protective equipment. And often I find that puts the patient at ease when discussing the actual invasive part of the procedure. And then our third step is to discuss the aftermath of the procedure. What can the patient expect after the procedure is finished? Are there any red flag signs they need to be aware of? And what would be a sign that they need to come back to hospital if they are indeed going home following the procedure? So that's it for procedural process. And we'll have an example of each of our procedures later in the podcast. But now moving on to our second letter, B. So B stands for benefits. And hopefully this is quite basic for most of you listening. But it's nice to divide the benefits of the procedure into therapeutic or diagnostic so this is partly explaining why we're actually providing the procedure or performing the procedure for the patient. Either the investigation is going to give us information hopefully leading to the diagnosis or it's going to provide a form of symptomatic relief to the patient. Hopefully if this is a patient station this is going to be clear from the vignette given to you prior to the discussion. However If you're performing this procedure in your clinical practice it's going to be up to you to make sure that the procedure is actually necessary and we're not putting the patient through something uh, needlessly. So moving on to the next letter which is R. So moving quickly on before we can dwell on how much I sound like a pirate when I said that letter R, arguably the next is the most important step of any consenting process and this is explaining the risks this part is just so important to get right number one because it's the most important aspect of informed consent that patients must be provided with information on the risks associated with any medical procedure now my go-to phrase to start off this part of the consenting process goes something like this we know that no medical procedure is without risk and we have to tell you about all the risks that includes the common risks which are less serious and the serious risks which are much less common now, other people might have different ways of doing this, but I personally then go on to list the risks in that respective order. Those which are more common and less serious, before moving on to the more serious risks, which are less common. And one thing which I try and make a habit of as I go through this consenting process of discussing the risks is then, after each risk, explain how we're going to mitigate that risk or emphasise how either way they're in the correct place, i.e. in hospital, for us to manage that risk should it occur. The fact that you're focused on reassuring them about how you plan to mitigate those risks should hopefully reassure the patient about the upcoming procedure and make them more inclined to undergo it and hopefully mean you can get more information for their diagnosis or hopefully make their symptoms better. Now, there are some risks which are what I would call quite generic risks which are common to many of the procedures that we perform on patients presenting to us. And usually I start with the more benign uh, risks associated with the procedure and some of these are, as I've said, are common across many of the procedures. So I always mention pain, I always mention bleeding and bruising, I always mention there's a risk of infection when we breach the skin's protective barrier I always mention that I may not be able to perform the procedure and I may have to ask a colleague to have a further attempt. And and other generic uh, risks which you'll need to be more specific about depending on the procedure but is damage to surrounding structures and obviously that depends on which procedure you're doing. As well as that there's also the possibility that the patient may have a reaction to the local anaesthetic. And it's for that reason I always ask them if they've had a dental procedure where they've had local anaesthetic before. And if they've had it quite recently, it's probably unlikely that they're going to have a reaction to that. So as I mentioned, as I'm talking through the procedure, I'm also trying to mitigate those risks as I'm going through. So, for example, when I mention that the procedure may be painful or that they may have pain after the procedure, I always mention that we try and mitigate that with the use of local anaesthetic. Talking about bleeding and bruising, often I try and emphasise that it's often a small incision or a small needle puncture and hopefully the risk of bleeding is low. When we talk about infection, as I said, I always mention the use of the aseptic technique with the use of sterile PPE when required to mitigate that risk of infection. So just to recap those risks, which are pretty much generic among many of the procedures that we perform, Pain, bleeding, bruising, risk of infection, reaction to local anaesthetic, failure of the procedure or need for a further procedure, and damage to surrounding structures, which you'll need to go into more detail on depending on the procedure. Now, when you come to approach the less common but serious risks, it can be helpful to know some actual statistics, some percentages or some frequencies to ensure as best you can that the patient is reassured that these are very low likelihood eventualities, but they need to know because it's part of informed consent. With these more serious risks, if I'm performing them on an inpatient, I'll always say, you're in the right place for us to manage that risk should it occur. And if they're an outpatient, I will always explain the red flags to look out for just in case they may be suffering from that complication when they go home. And we'll talk more about the specific serious risks when we go into our case studies. So moving on to our next letter, the next letter is A. And much as I'd love to be the Fonz, unfortunately I'm just not cool enough. Note: this A stands for alternatives. Are there any alternative options to performing this procedure for the patient? Can it be managed medically with tablets or with intravenous medications? Obviously this will depend on the exact circumstances and the reason the procedure is being performed. In my experience, Alternatives may be sought out by the patient who is anxious about the procedure. They may be questioning whether the procedure needs to be performed at all. It's important to be honest and explain how the benefits may outweigh the risks for this given procedure and often there are alternatives. An example from my career, a lady who was admitted with a large pleural and pericardial effusion of unclear etiology. She had early signs of tamponade on her echo but critically she wasn't actively tamponading. And so rather than perform an urgent pericardiocentesis with a drain, which may have yielded a diagnosis, the team opted for the, the perceptibly less hazardous pleural tap for the important diagnostic information, which meant we were able to perform the pericardial drain in an urgent but semi-elective fashion. So that's just an example where actually there was an alternative procedure available rather than us blinkered cardiologists just storming in and putting a needle into a pericardium. The safer thing for that particular patient was to take an alternative and safer investigation of a plural tap. But never forget that it's not your job to try and convince the patient to have the procedure. Your role is to explain the procedure to the patient, provide them the necessary information for them to make an informed decision, providing of course that they have capacity. The next letter in my acronym is N. N stands for nothing as in, what happens if we do nothing? This is important for both diagnostic and therapeutic procedures. If you do nothing, then you're potentially left with a patient either without a diagnosis or one who's still suffering symptoms. Naturally, you may find that those patients who are very symptomatic are more keen to have their procedure, but doing nothing is always an option and explaining this to the patient is usually short, if they are agreeable to the procedure. But if patients are not keen on the procedure for whatever reason, explaining what the likely direction of travel is without doing the procedure is important. To use the pericardial effusion example again, we very often will see patients referred for an echo who have had a pericardial effusion, which is of reasonable size, but without signs of tamponade. And they may have some symptoms of breathlessness, but they're often not very severe. Doing nothing is certainly an option, And we can review with serial scans or repeat imaging and simply safety net the patient to return if their symptoms become more severe. Doing nothing may also be the best option for a patient who is near to the point of palliation, particularly for diagnostic procedures. If the patient has had a long course of treatment or has been an inpatient for a long time and doesn't wish to have any further procedures then of course their autonomy trumps whether or not we want to do the procedure at all and this should be respected. However, if the patient is particularly symptomatic even if they're on the verge of palliation, this should not be a preclusion to performing an invasive procedure for the relief of symptoms for a patient who is near to the end of their life. And now for the final letter of my acronym which is I. Now, if you remember, the <laughs> initial acronym was actually P brain and I is The letter which is deferred to the end and the reason for that is i stands for instinct and this one's slightly controversial and may or may not be relevant for your paces station but truthfully i found it very helpful for my career whilst of course the choice to be a subject to a procedure is the patients and we as doctors can promote a joint decision making process with our patients but for some patients particularly older patients they're willing to go with what we suggest for them They see us as the experts in medicine and they're willing to trust us with doing what's best for them. When I think about instinct in the context of consenting a patient for a procedure, I often ask myself the question, if this patient was a family member of mine, my gran, my mum, my auntie or my uncle, would I want them to undergo this procedure too if they were in the same position? Or do I think it would be fair to them to actually not have the procedure and be managed conservatively or consider alternative options? So I think instinct is something which has to be taken more in clinical practice and less in paces and particularly if you find you have a, a good rapport with your patient or if in fact they're expecting you to take the lead in making decisions which you deem to be in their best interests. Often patients of an older generation I found in my experience have been more willing to trust us with what we believe to be in their best interests. So that completes my p brain acronym and just to recap my own process for consenting patients p for procedural process what is going to happen before we perform the procedure when we perform the procedure and after we perform the procedure b for benefits explaining to the patient why we're performing this procedure for diagnostic or therapeutic purposes Risks, talking through the common but less serious risks, and then the less common but more serious risks. Are there any alternative treatment measures which we can do in the meantime whilst not performing a procedure? What happens if we do nothing? And lastly, which is at your discretion, what's your instincts? What would you do with a family member if they were in the same position? In the next bit, I'll be talking through our three index procedures Some of the really common ones which you'll have to do on a regular basis on the medical wards or on the medical take. Welcome back listeners and now to approach three of the most common procedures you may be asked to perform on the wards or on the take. First of all, let's tackle the lumbar puncture, or the LP – a very, very common investigation required for assessment of neurological symptoms or headache. So how to explain an LP using our framework? What are the risks that I routinely consent for, and how do you approach a patient who says they have concerns about it or don't want to have it? An example vignette in a patient scenario may be something like a 35-year-old woman has attended with episodic blurred vision and altered sensation. The working diagnosis is multiple sclerosis and you've been asked to consent her for a lumbar puncture. So firstly, when consenting for LPs, the majority of the time the procedure is diagnostic. We're seeking more information or hoping to test for a specific finding. The exception to that, of course, is a therapeutic tap, usually for patients with idiopathic intracranial hypertension. But either way, you're going to explain the benefit of the procedure, that being to either provide symptomatic relief or provide diagnostic information. Now I've taken the risks of a lumbar puncture from a variety of sources and condensed them down. And most of the sources that I've used are from various NHS trusts. And I will put the links to those sources in the show notes. I thought it probably wasn't appropriate for me to explain how you do an LP, since the focus of this episode is on the consenting rather than the actual performing of the procedures. But the majority of the sources I've used have excellent procedural summaries and most of them are actually intended for patients so you could easily replicate these in your spiel when you speak to your patient. As per usual you're going to mention the generic risks pain, bleeding, bruising, infection, reaction to local anaesthetic, procedure failure and need for a further procedure. The more specific risks for lumbar punctures include an LP headache Now I've seen the frequency of this quoted from anywhere between 10 to 30% of patients and this is due to the reduction in pressure of the CSF bathing the brain. It can start from a few hours after the procedure up to about two days after the procedure and it may last for days. Very rarely the headache can last for weeks or months and very rarely patients may require a further procedure to seal the lumbar puncture site from leaking further CSF. This is usually done by anaesthetists and is called a blood patch. The next risk specific to LPs is back pain and bruising. You'll mention this in the generic part of it, but back pain particularly can be troublesome and the treatment is simple pain relief. One of the more serious risks to consent patients for, as we've mentioned, is damage to surrounding structures and for a lumbar puncture, it's damage to the nerves. Now, this is extremely rare, less than one in a thousand, which I've seen quoted in the sources I've used, and it may present as leg pain or even bladder and bowel symptoms. If there are concerns, particularly as an outpatient, then they need to telephone your department or speak to their GP, or if they're very concerned, then obviously signpost them to your emergency department. Now, you'll have explained to the patient about the risk of infection, but particularly with a lumbar puncture, you'll need to consent them for the risk of meningitis as well. As well as a localized infection in the back, you may well introduce infection into the CSF space. You're obviously going to say you're going to reduce the risk by using aseptic technique and meticulous hygiene practices, but this is something which you should mention to your patients. And again, another extremely rare complication, but it's important to consent your patients for this, is a blood clot or a hematoma in the spinal cord at the LP site. This is potentially serious and may require spinal surgery to fix it, but the risk is extremely low, less than 1 in 10,000 LPs undertaken, which would equate to less than 0.01%. Now, if we examine the rest of our acronym in the context of our PACES vignette, what are our alternatives to performing this procedure? Well, you might argue that for a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, this is most evident on an MRI scan showing demyelinating plaques. However, finding oligoclonal bands does have some clinical significance. And thinking of that, we should probably do an episode on multiple sclerosis soon so we can learn about the relevance of oligoclonal bands in the context of a patient with suspected MS. So maybe look out for that maybe sometime in the new year. Next up, what happens if we do nothing? Well, we can decide to do nothing But it would just mean that we have a little less credibility in our diagnostic certainty with regard to her diagnosis. But personally, I wouldn't say that this is an absolutely critical procedure that has to be performed for a diagnosis of MS, but it would be helpful. And that's the way that I'd frame it to a patient. But obviously, this is dependent on the exact clinical circumstances. Moving on to our next procedure which is consenting for a chest or intercostal drain. As I'm sure you will know, this is usually done for therapeutic reasons to drain either fluid or air from the pleural space, but the samples can also be sent for lab analysis for diagnostic purposes. A Pace's vignette may read something like this. A gentleman in his 60s has presented with breathlessness and a chest x-ray has shown a large right-sided pleural effusion. He has some concerns about the procedure of an intercostal drain and you've been asked by your consultant to speak to him about performing the procedure. As we've discussed, the format of the more generic complications is still relevant for this procedure. You'll consent the patient for pain, bleeding, bruising, infection, procedure failure, further procedure, they're all still relevant. But discussing the more specific risks to chest drain insertion. Number one is causing a pneumothorax. This is obviously more pertinent in the cases where you're draining a pleural effusion. I often describe it as an air leak in the uh, chest wall where the risk is less than 1%. Uh, When you're draining a uh, pneumothorax, the patient can develop a cough as the lung re-expands. And if this is extremely debilitating, it may mean that the drain is clamped for a short period. However, this is uh, drastically at odds with um, the usual Um, management of draining pneumothorax where the adage is never clamp a swinging drain Uh, next up a specific risk for intercostal drains is subcutaneous emphysema and I describe this as air leakage in the soft tissues under the skin and this is generally low risk and it resolves often with time but they may feel unusual to the patient and they may want it explained to them One of the most common risks specific to intercostal drains is the drain moving, a need for a reposition of a drain or a drain blockage. Now this is dependent on how severe uh, this affects the patient but a blocked drain can often uh, be attempted to be cleared with uh, some thrombolytic therapies such as urokinase. However, It may result in the need for the drain to be replaced. So it's important to consent the patient for that, as that is a form of further procedure. Now, as with other procedures, we always talk about damage to surrounding structures. Now, this is specific depending on which side the pneumothorax is on or the pleural effusion is on. If it's on the left-hand side, then you've obviously got a slight risk of um, hitting the heart, although uh, obviously that is a very low uh, frequency risk. You also should consent the patient for damage to other structures such as the esophagus, the liver or the spleen. If you're using the safe triangle however, this is usually very uh, a very rare occurrence. Major bleeding is very unlikely but it's something that we ought to consent our patients for and this is a less than one in 500 risk. It's important to say that if this could require a major operation and major bleeding can sometimes result in death But, it's important to say this is vanishingly rare and I have never seen a case of it in my career. Moving on now to abdominal paracentesis or acidic drain insertion. Similar to a chest drain in many ways, you can perform this either for diagnostic or therapeutic indications. The acidic fluid can of course be sent for analysis and particularly for a serum ascites albumin gradient but can also be used to relieve symptoms related to ascites. The same principles apply to the paces vignette. For example, a lady in her 50s presents with abdominal swelling and an ultrasound has shown a significant amount of ascites. The ultrasonographers have marked the appropriate spot on the abdomen to spot your needle. Please consent the patient for the procedure. As ever, our format of Pain, bleeding, bruising, infection, procedure failure, or need for a further procedure will still apply, but running through the specific risks of abdominal paracentesis. Following an acidic drain, there may be a persistent fluid leak from the drainage site, which may require either a dressing, sometimes they fit a small bag over the drainage site to collect uh, the residual fluid, and sometimes a stitch is required to close the drainage site as well. In a similar way to the chest drains, The tube may become blocked, requiring a reposition or a replacement of the drain. Occasionally, when there is a significant amount of ascites drained, patients can become hypotensive due to osmotic fluid shifts uh, within the abdomen, and they may require additional fluid therapy, usually human albumin solution. And within the sources that uh, I did the research for this uh, part of the episode, the recommended fluid therapy is 100 mils of 20% human albumin for every three litres of ascites drained. It's obviously important to consent them for infection and as well as a localised infection where the drain meets the skin there's also a risk of introducing infection to the peritoneal cavity which may require intravenous antibiotics to treat. As ever damage to surrounding structures is also a risk This is a potentially serious complication and it's important particularly to mention bowel perforation which may also affect the liver and the spleen. The statistics I found was that it's extremely rare 6 per 1000 acidic drains performed however it's important to consent the patient that it may require an operation to fix. listeners if you found this episode helpful then i strongly urge you to get access to pastest.com by clicking on any of the links in the show notes over at test they have video case scenarios very similar to the scenarios which i discussed during this episode it is invaluable for your preparation for this type of station which comes up in paces time and time again and i couldn't recommend passtest.com enough and you can find a link to the PACES resource in the show notes. So there we have it, listeners. My process for consenting patients for invasive procedures, including describing the procedural practicalities, the procedural process, the benefits, the risks, including the common but less serious risks, as well as the serious risks, which are less common. What are the alternatives? What happens if we do nothing? And what's your instinct if this was a family member of yours? We talked through a generic format for many risks which are transferable across different procedures. And then we've talked through our three main procedures and talked about the specific risks related to each of those. So I hope you found it helpful. But that is the end of another show. Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe to the show and leave a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. I really always do love to hear from you and particularly relating to the new Paces 2023 format If anyone's still sitting it or got their exam coming up, please do let me know how it went. Give me a shout. Let me know how it goes. How did you find the new format? I really want to know. You can get in touch with us either on Twitter, it's at Podcast, or via the website. And as ever, if you want to go above and beyond and support the show, it's buymeacoffee.com slash PrePacesPodcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Dr. Sam Williams, and we'll see you next time on the PrePaces Podcast.